Okay, y'all, open your Bibles or turn on your electronic devices to John chapter 2. I was excited to find this article from my alma mater. John Cague, a UMass professor of philosophy, and Clancy Martin, a University of Missouri philosopher, uh, wrote an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education called, Can Transcendence Be Taught? Can Transcendence Be Taught? So they wrote, when a 98-year-old asked, why am I in pain, the biologist has answers. Vasoconstriction, dehydration, toxicity. The evolutionary biologist might say, pain is an adaptive response to the world's dangers. But they go on to write, but those aren't the type of answers that will satisfy a dying man. They trade in the abstract, the alien, detached from human life and human existence, end quote. Everyone struggles with transcendence. Transcendence is supra, it's ultra, it's other, above, it's otherworldly reality, some supreme, some unequaled meaning, truth, joy. Connecting to transcendence is a struggle that all of us have, everyone across the board. In fact, Kagan Martin continued to write how Kierkegaard argued for this in terms of knowing God that there's this deep sense of connecting to transcendence, not just having the data of it in our head. He goes on to say how Kierkegaard said, rationally knowing that God exists as a consequence of some proof is different than believing God exists in a relevant way. And then these guys go on to, to quote, you know, it could be like if you were Edwards, you'd say there's a difference between understanding the chemical properties of honey and then actually tasting it. It's hard to describe the reality But there's a vastly difference between the sweetness of honey and breaking down the properties of it. Uh, These guys, though, didn't use Edwards. They used Neo in the Matrix, where Neo says, no one can tell you you're in love. You just know it through and through, right? End quote. So everyone is struggling to connect with transcendence, a transcendent meaning, a transcendent joy, a transcendent peace, a transcendent love. At 81, John Cage's grandfather, Paul, wanted to see the Grand Tetons one last time. So he enlisted his grandson, John, the family philosopher, as a chaperone. The whole family said, this is absolutely ridiculous. This is nuts. No old man with a mechanical hit should be trudging through the woods. And they were right. They were exactly right. As the grandfather said, John, at 81, said in his own words, I went, quote, ass over tin cups in the woods. And he ended up in the emergency room. At age 85, four years later, he wanted to ride his bike one last time. Problem was he couldn't get his leg over the crossbar, the middle bar on the bike. But he enlisted his partner in crime because his hand-wringing daughters would not allow it. So he got his grandson again, the family philosopher, to participate in this excursion. Again, another secret trip to the emergency room. A year later, now 86, Paul wants to talk about love. So who did he enlist? His grandson, right? And this time, John Cage said, quote, something more notable than the emergency room happened. Tears. And his grandfather wiped his eyes and said, hey, let's talk about this again sometime. Everybody struggles to connect to transcendence. You know what C.S. Lewis would say? 
We struggle with an inconsolable secret. You have an inconsolable secret in you. You long to connect to joy, but not just, not just normal joy, ultra joy, unequaled joy, supra, we could say theologically, eternal joy and love. You know what's so fascinating about this passage that we're going to look at, y'all? Jesus knows that about you. He knows our struggle. And you know what he's doing in John 2? I'm coming to bring the transcendence to you. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. A reading from the Gospel according to John, chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites, rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of the signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went up down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for three days. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you work wonders through your word, that you're speaking and you're acting are the same thing, and so we ask you to speak. Speak words of blessing into our soul. Shine on the page. Fill us with your spirit even now. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to actually experience the reality of this passage, for this is what you've come to do. And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, look at verses 1 through 3. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. I mean, eventually, eventually, life runs out of wine. You know, the groom in the ancient world, along with his family and friends, were responsible to cater the wedding. This meant that all the food and all the drink for up to a week was their, his responsibility. This also meant there was an expectation in the ancient world, a, a social expectation, that all the food and all the drink, all the celebration, all the partying, all the joy was to be provided by the groom. This also meant that this is why Mary had probably such a great concern for the wine, because she was probably a friend of the family, and she was, she was in the catering business. Right, Lee? <laughs> Lee knows about catering. So running out of wine in verse 3 is a big deal, 
But it's a big deal in traditional cultures because traditional cultures value appearance. We could say traditional cultures have this hunger for honor. We could say traditional cultures find their transcendence, their deep connection to love, their deep connection to joy, their deep connection to meaning and worth and value and what people think of them. And even maybe more deeply, what they think of themselves. And so public shame is so powerful in ancient culture. It's so powerful, it has the power to shatter you with shame. To break you down and undo you worse than the flood. They have no wine. That is a powerful statement. Why, though? Why does life eventually run out of wine? Does the text give us any clue? It does. It's a rather startling picture. Right in the midst of this party, right in the midst of one of the highest points in human life, of marriage, of intimacy, of joy, of celebration with family and friends, right in the midst of it stand six ugly stone bathtubs. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. That's 120 at minimum, 180 at maximum gallons of water. The picture here is amazing. Right in the middle of this massive party, there is huge bathtubs of 180 gallons of need. The need for the world and for life to be cleansed. The need for people in this world and in this life to be cleansed. We could say it this way. Life eventually runs out of wine because the world, the life, you and me, we're dirty. We're not pure. We're unclean. Your marriage is not clean. That's why it runs out of wine. This church and all churches are not clean. That's why they run out of wine. Your friendships, your career, your school, your high school, your university, your talents and your abilities, great things and achievements that we do, they're not clean. That's why they run out of wine. You are not clean. That's why you run out of wine. What is this passage inviting us to do, though, when this happens? It's a fair question, right? I mean, it's an honest passage. It's going to make it really, really clear that wine runs out. When wine runs out, when the experience of no wine in life happens to us, what is this passage inviting us to? The answer is really, really surprising. Verse 4, it's found in verse 4. Um, can I just say that verse 4 is commentary purgatory? It is complete commentary chaos in verse 4. 
Verse 4, there is no agreement in verse 4. I probably have, I think I have six or seven commentaries on John. Maybe ten. But six is all I'll be able to read in a week. And every single one of these guys have a different perspective of this passage. Every single one of them build a case. No one ultimately knows what it means. There's no universal agreement anywhere. So let's look at it. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. No matter how you parse it, no matter how you explain it, no matter how you look at it, Jesus' response to his mom is just plain weird. There's my mom. I cannot imagine any situation. I can't imagine any conversation. I can't imagine any encounter where I would say to my mom, Woman. <laughs> I can't imagine even with a nice tone, woman, there's not a tone. Some guys try to, they try to say that. This is an endearing term. This is not an endearing term. It's not an endearing term anywhere. In fact, there's nothing like it in the Greek language. There's nothing like it in the Roman Greco world. There's no place, no documentation of any son calling his mom a woman anywhere. It's just awkward. It's just kind of weird, right? So what's going on? Here's my take. Even Mary, the mother of Jesus, has to rethink Jesus. Everyone has to rethink Jesus several, several, multiple times in their life. Especially when your life runs out of wine. How does this passage want you to rethink Jesus? There are three ways. I'm going to give it to you first, then we're going to look at it. I'm going to give it to you first because you might forget it, and it's just better to do it deductively sometimes, okay? So this passage wants you to rethink Jesus in this way first. Jesus and his salvation. Jesus and his salvation is transcendent joy. <laughs> Jesus came into this world to release joy. Joy. Joy into your life. Into your marriage. Into your family. Into your friendships. Into your career. Into your athletic abilities. Into your musical abilities. Into your passions and gifts and talents and abilities into your city, into your school, into broken, beat-up places. Joy. Bertrand Russell, considered by many to be the greatest philosopher of the 20th century, he said, there is darkness without. When I die, there will be darkness within. That's pretty grim. You know what's fascinating? That his daughter became a Christian. And she said... My dad had a major barrier to becoming a Christian. Do you know what it was? Let's listen into her own words, what she says. I would have liked to convince my father that I had found what he had been looking for, that ineffable, which means inexpressible, beyond words, something he had longed for all his life. I would like to have persuaded him that the search for God does not have to be in vain. But it was hopeless. He had known too many blind Christians. Bleak moralists who sucked 
the joy from life. End quote. Pulitzer Prize winning author John Updike wrote a novel called A Month of Sundays. In it, one of his characters says, in general, the churches bore for me the same relation to God that billboards did for Coca-Cola. They promoted thirst without quenching it. Nothing in this passage, nothing about a wedding, nothing about the wine, nothing about a party in this passage is joy killing. There's nothing going on in this passage when Jesus takes 180 gallons of water, turns it into a superb wine for everyone to joy. There's nothing about that joy killing. Everything about this passage is intoxicating, intoxicating joy. Overabounding, transcendent joy. That's how the early church interpreted this passage. Isn't that interesting? The early church says, man, this is joy unleashed. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is a microcosm of the whole gospel of John and all of Jesus' life and ministry right here in a wedding in Canaan with 180 gallons of really good wine. It's even more than a picture, though. It's a sign of his whole ministry. Do you see that in verse 11? This is the first of his signs. Jesus did it Canaan, Galilee, which manifested his glory. Do you see that? His sign manifested his glory. Whatever this sign is, it reveals Jesus. Whatever this sign is, it reveals his ministry. Whatever this sign is, it reveals, it manifests who Jesus is and what he's really like and what he came to do. And it's a first sign because there are seven signs in John. It's the first sign. It's the preeminent sign. It's the defining. A sign is a defining, controlling picture, image of what Jesus is all about. This is the real Jesus. This is real Christianity. What are we supposed to look like as a church? What is our life supposed to look like as a church? What's real Christianity that John would say, real Christianity, man. It's transcendent joy breaking into your life. It's joy from another world that, that takes root in your own life. One scholar asked, why would this be his inaugural act? Why would Jesus, to convey what he had come to do, this is the whole summary of his whole ministry is right here in this passage. Why would he choose to turn 150 gallons of water into superb wine in order to keep a party going? And the answer is because Jesus came into the world to release joy, celebration, a big old party. Eventually, life runs out of wine. But Jesus says, I never do. Rethink Jesus, the passage is calling us to do. How does this passage want us to rethink Jesus? Well, Jesus and salvation is transcendent joy. But Jesus and salvation is also material. Do you see that in the passage? In other words, Jesus loves this material world. This material world he loves. Johannine scholar Frederick Bruner says of this passage, Jesus was clearly not a recluse, a hermit, or 
an unnaturally religious person. Do you know what an unnaturally religious person is? A stuffy person. A very moralistic person. A person who's really, really concerned about being good and being right. And everything around his environment needs to be controlled that way. The way to find someone who's unnaturally religious is to cuss in front of them. Then you'll find out. Because they have this incredible need to be uncomfortable in that moment. And to somehow fix it. And purify it. Try it sometime. It's quite interesting. <laughs> Jesus was clearly not a recluse, a hermit, or an unnaturally religious person. Do you know that Dr. Hannah, now you got me going. You know what Dr. Hannah used to do in our classes? He knew that. And so he would intentionally, in the middle of his lecture, he'd say a cuss word, just while he's writing on the board. Up, 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 beep, beep, beep. And it was so fun, because I've had him so many times now. Pete and I used to sit in the class, and we'd go, we'd go our radars would go up, watch this. <laughs> And just people start getting uncomfortable. And then you start seeing people talk. Did he just say what I thought he just said? It's great. It was really fun. I have no idea why I did that. The geographicity of these final verses. This is the, the scholar. Let's get back to him. Like the specificity of the first verses, roots are incident in real space, in real time, and not with mythic people or extraterrestrials. Real people... Mother, brothers, disciples, waiters, head waiter, bridegroom, and light-headed guests make up our story, end quote. We could say this is a story that's made up of a real wedding with real wine, with a real connection, with a real celebration in a real place. Thomas Warmath. Thomas... Thomas was a, was a student here at Baylor, and a once upon a time pastoral apprentice, now pastor and brother-in-law of the Fords. It's just so great when you, I read his comment on this passage, and I'm like, I'm, I wish I could have written it like that or thought of it like that. And it's just so cool to know that this is a someone that was trained here and sent out. It's really, really cool. Thomas said, wine is definitely a cool creational picture of something that God has made good, grapes, yeast, etc. But he uses us to make into something really exceptional, wine. I think you could say that at Cana, Jesus is being very God and very human, more human than any of us. Jesus loves this wedding. <laughs> And he loves, he loves your wedding. And he loves your kids. And he loves your job. And he loves the daily grind you're involved in. And he loves the car that you drive to work that drives you crazy and breaks down. He loves this world, this material world. Eastern philosophy says the material world is only an illusion. So why worry about it? Plato says the material world is only a temporary copy of the ideal or real world that's out there somewhere. So this is not what's real. It's just a copy. So you don't need to concern yourself with it. Some Christians say the material world is only a distraction, that the spiritual world is all that matters. 
So focus on the spiritual. Focus on your quiet time. Focus on your individual spiritual realities of your life. And then you'd create these incredible dichotomies of, well, how do I deal with the spirit? And I got to live in the real world. And people get all caught up and like, okay, two nights a week, I'll go do church stuff. And then the other nights, I'll try to do stuff with the, the community. And everybody's torn to pieces in the secular, sacred division. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that Jesus was saved in spirit and raised in body. In other words, God created both and redeems both and loves both. No false dichotomies. God loves this world. One writer says, this world is not simply a theater for individual conversion narratives to be discarded at the end when we all go to heaven. Nah, this world with all of its colors and all of its sights and all of its smells and all of its electricity and all of its excitements and all of its blooms and all of its flourishing and all of its concrete solid realities, he loves. And yes, man, it's broken and it's stained and it's messed up. But Jesus says, I won't rest until I heal it all. Until I heal you and I heal your body and I heal this world because I love this world. So you know what this means? Jesus loves the material world so so should we. We are not escape we are not escapists. We are not Gnostics. Just go look that one up. That's a long one. In other words, we don't divide body and soul. We are an embodied soul. You lose your arm, you lost part of you. You, you lost part of you. So this means we should enjoy it. Remember Ecclesiastes? Enjoy it. Enjoy what God's given. I mean, y'all, here's, here's how important this is. That if you enjoy the world and the good things that God has given, you are loving God. And some of us are saying, but wait a minute, Jeff, doesn't, doesn't the scripture say don't love the world? It does say that, doesn't it? But you know what's happening there? You're not loving the world. You're using and abusing the world. When you love it too much. You're taking the world and trying to make it transcendent joy for you. And it, it can't do that. You're trying to make it God for you. It can't do that. You're misusing the world. You're abusing the world. If John was here, he'd say it another way. He'd say, listen, here's how I know if you love God. Do you love people? John could say, here's how I know if you love God. Do you love the world? the solid realities, the material realities of this world, because God, Jesus, loves it so much, he's redeeming it and making all things new. So, work to heal it. Poverty, hunger, sickness, injustice, evil, suffering. You bet we should be a part of that. Get involved with it. Be a real human being in a real place. Be involved with your communities and your neighborhoods. You know what the early church, when they saw this thing, you know what they said? This is about hospitality. This is about throwing big parties. This is about the Christian community should throw the biggest and best 
block parties, parties ever. And not worry about, oh, oops, ah, what? No. Party throwing people is what the early church saw this to be. So rethink Jesus. How does this passage want us to rethink Jesus? Jesus and his salvation is transcendent. Jesus and his salvation is material. And finally, Jesus and his salvation is experiential. I mean, everything about this passage is deeply experiential. Do you see this? I mean, the wedding feast engages your appetites and your senses. I mean, everything about it. This is not being endorsed, what we're about to look at. But Jesus did make wine that could intoxicate. He says not to get drunk with it, but he made wine with the ability to do that. It's real clear. Verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Drunk freely, freely means to be intoxicated. So Paul makes it real clear, we're not to be intoxicated. Because if we're intoxicated, we're now controlled. We're now, we now have a, a new Lord functionally in our life. And it's not one that loves you but one that will abuse you. But he made the wine to be a blessing, right? That's the appetites, the senses. Look at verse 11. And his disciples believed in him. The literal translation in this is, and his disciples believed into him. So we don't say this. We don't walk up to Sam and say, Sam, uh, you believed into that political candidate, didn't you? Nobody talks that way. But John does. Every time John talks about someone trusting in Jesus, he, he says it this way. They believed into him. They trust in Jesus was so intimate, it was an experience. You enter into Jesus and his salvation. His story is your story. His life is your life. His joy is your joy. His peace is is your peace. His love is your love. Transcendence is communicated, enjoyed, and intruded into someone's life because they are into Jesus. They experience him. They are united to him. Theologically, it's called union with Christ. We always emphasize the legal, but there is a mystical, experiential reality to union with Christ. And that's what's being talked about in this passage. Rethink Jesus. So how do we experience Jesus' salvation? This is how we're going to end, and I'm so excited that we're going to be here because we are going to solve verse 4. I'm tired of the chaos. You all are going to solve it. The first service and the second service, we are going to be maybe some of the few people on the planet that actually know what this passage means. If anyone, if anyone ever said that to you and I heard that, I'd say flee. <laughs> here it is. You ready? Who's responsible to pay for the wedding? Do you remember? The groomsman, right? And he would elicit his family and friends to help him. Now hold that. So this party that they're having here isn't free. The groomsman paid for it. But he blew it. He either didn't have enough money, or he didn't calculate the number of people that were going to be there, or he just thought he could get away with it. But he blew it. Listen again to what Jesus and Mary in their weird conversation, their weird interaction. When the wine ran out, who's responsible? 
Groomsmen, good. Who pays for the wine? Groomsmen, okay. You guys, I'm just so excited you're going to get this. We're going to get it. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Why didn't Mary go to the groom? Maybe she did. Because maybe there's a bigger, more cosmic, more ultimate, more transcendent wedding feast. And Jesus is thinking about the ultimate party, the ultimate celebration, and what it would cost him. That's why he says in verse 6, My hour has not yet come. In the book of John, my hour always reveals, always speaks of Jesus' death. The cross hour. And so this is a proleptic view. You don't get the data here, but the next time my hour shows up, it's Jesus' death. The next time, Jesus' death. And what John is doing is he's telling you that my hour, the cross hour, is the lens by which you see the whole gospel of John. And it's the lens by which we see this incredible party at Canaan. My hour is the better groomsman paying for the party. This bride's groom blows it, but isn't it incredible that Jesus has compassion on him? And says, so just watch, pal. I'm going to about ready to Julio Gallo or whoever's a great whiner has nothing about what I'm about to do. He has compassion on him and he he fixes the situation, but it's a sign. It's a miracle that points to the ultimate wedding party. In fact, you know what the Old Testament says? When the Messiah shows up, this is what the Old Testament says, when the Messiah shows up, it's an age where the mountains will flow with rivers of wine. The last great day in Revelation is called a wedding feast. A party, a celebration. And it's not transcendent joy that's intruding. It's transcendent joy that is the solid reality of everyone's experience forever and ever and ever. Amen. So he pays for the party with his life. He pays for your sins with his life. He pays for your cleansing and for the world's cleansing, the world's healing, your healing with his life. He pays for transcendent joy and a resurrected body and a material world that gets ultracized forever and ever with his life. Believe into Jesus. Rethink Jesus. Eventually in this life, the wine runs out, but Jesus' wine never does. Amen.